You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 22nd, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everyone. And we have a special guest rogue this week, all the way from Australia, Richard Saunders. And in my case, it's good morning, everybody. <laughs> good morning, Richard. Richard. Hey. Top of How's the morning. He- that's what we've been forgetting, Evan, when you do your greetings from around the world. You should have been doing them in the local time zone. Mm. You think so? Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's always a good idea. Or I could just do what I've been doing. Yeah, I could do that too. <laughs> so, Richard, how have you been? I've been really well. I've been traveling. In fact, I had uh, the great pleasure of bumping into a uh, certain Rebecca Watson a few weeks ago in the Czech Republic. That's right. That was a pleasant surprise. It, it was great. Uh, we were both the guests of a f- uh, scientific film festival called AFO in uh, Olomouc in the Czech Republic, uh, Academia Film Festival in Olomouc. And it was just a, a really fantastic time. So, um, yeah, I've been busy. I've been traveling. I went to Norway. I went to Ireland. I went to the UK giving talks in all those countries. Uh, and before long, I'll be getting on a plane heading for TAM Las Vegas. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that'll be the next time that uh, we'll see you in Las Vegas. Yeah. Looking also forward looking to forward that. Forward to it. Yeah. So you've had a lot of you've had some projects you've been working on too, as well as traveling around the world. Oh, I'm always working on projects, Steve. You know me. Uh, I think personally, the the biggest thing I've uh, been working on was uh, my very own uh, radio adventure or audio adventure, so to speak, inspired by the good old fashioned uh, radio adventures of years gone past. And I finally wrote it and produced it and got the Skeptic Zone gang together. And it's called Solar Flare. It's a big sort of adventurous space opera starring none other than Jay Novella as a special guest villain. Ooh. (laughs) Yes. So Richard emails me with dialogue and he goes, um, you know, it gives me a very short description, right? You didn't really want to go into too much detail. I was trying to get some feedback, Richard. If you remember, I'm like, what do you want? And you're like, just do it. <laughs> yes. Well, so I didn't I, want to give too much away. I put on like, you know, like a voice that I thought would fit the genre. And uh after I heard it produced and edited in, you know, I didn't even have anybody else to play off of. It was just me pretending in my head that I'm hearing the other person's lines. And it was so much yeah. fun. You're used to hearing other people's voices in your head, though. Oh, yeah. So. Believe me. I don't – I it really wasn't a deficit for me at all. I'm really good. <laughs> I like to pretend out of my head. That's always better. But I, I – um, so I, I listened to an early cut, and I love it. I mean, Richard, you really did something excellent. You know, I, I think the whole project is, is awesome. And you had – um. Now, who did you have on your end do voice acting? We had everybody involved in the skeptic zone, as many people, uh, Dr. Rachi, of course, Aran Segev, Joe Benamou, uh, Stefan, all the people who, who work, uh, Maynard on the skeptic zone. I got as many of them together in one room as possible, because you can't get everybody together in one room, uh, on the same day. And for a couple of hours, we recorded dialogue into some good microphones. Uh, and then I've got the rest of the cast scattered around the world, including yourself and other people in the United States, to send in their lines like you did. And then it was up to me to put them all together. It was like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Add sound effects, add music. Um, it took months to put it all together, but finally I did it. But it's something something I've always wanted to do. 
make a radio audio adventure and uh, it's got excellent reactions people love it they're writing in telling me that certain parts of their anatomy had fallen off from laughing <laughs> when they're listening to it uh, i don't think that's supposed to happen i don't want to <laughs> it's that funny rebecca anybody. okay especially the part i'm in it's that good well richard how can we hear it <laughs> if you go to www.skepticzone.tv which is the uh the web page for the skeptic zone podcast the podcast for science and reason from sydney australia uh and scroll down just a little bit you'll see there it is solar flare a uh a space adventure Sweet. Hey, speaking of, happy Dork Day, everybody. <laughs> dork Day? Happy. Excuse me? You dork mean? Day? I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, happy Geek Pride Day, everybody. That's it's, better. Oh, that, that's, that's Geek different. Pride. <laughs> I don't know. Geek, geek Pride is a bit funny because, I mean, maybe in the 80s or something, the idea of Geek Pride had some sort of necessity, but today the geeks rule the world, so you don't really need a geek pride day but well, it's pride. anyway rebecca i have a question for you are yes are all geeks dorks or or do you have to be a geek to be a dork no what about, not what all geeks no. are dorks and in fact no. most geeks these days are not dorks okay are all, all dorks geeks no 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 because geek i think geek requires a vast amount of knowledge about a particular subject dork is more of a derogatory term I yeah. think there were dorks long before there were geeks. Yeah, the, the real battle is between geeks and nerds. Th- those are yes. the real heavyweights. But that's a that's we could do an entire podcast on the taxonomy <laughs> of <laughs> of nerds and geeks and dorks. So uh, no, so May twenty fifth is Geek Pride Day, uh, which started around two thousand six, like the first Geek Pride celebration. It was like a Spanish uh, day called uh, Dia del Orgullo Freaky. I'm I completely butchered that. I apologize to all of our Spanish speakers in the audience. But it's uh, May 25th is notable for several reasons. Number one, it was the day in 1977 that Star Wars A New Hope was released. Or as we knew it back then, Star Wars. Star Wars. 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 (laughs) Indeed. It's also Towel Day, uh, which is probably most appropriate for the listeners to this podcast. Towel Day comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. The idea being that today you must, you should carry your towel around with you at all times because it's the handiest tool you could possibly own. Well, Rebecca, it's not just Doug- that. Douglas you, Adams. You have to always yes. know where your towel is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're carrying it well, with you, then... My favorite line from that part of the book says, Any man who can hitch the length and breadth of the galaxy, rough it, slum it, struggle against terrible odds, win through and still know where his towel is, is clearly a man to be reckoned with. <laughs> and don't forget the best towels are soaked in nutrients and have little tools and gadgets embedded in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are the high, those are the high end ones. There's one other reason why May 25th is considered, uh, Geek Pride Day. And that is because it is the glorious 25th of May, which is referenced in Terry Pratchett's series Discworld, which I haven't read yet. And it's on my list, like one of my next books to read. So no spoilers. They all die at the end. Ah. No, they don't. It's all a dream. Turns out they were dead the whole time. How many movies can you say that about? Well, happy Geek Day, everyone. Rebecca, when you sent me this item, I misread it as Greek Pride Day. And I'm like, what the hell does Star Wars have to do with Greek Pride Day? That's actually like next week, though. I'm not even kidding. I was just talking to my my friend about how in Buffalo there's a Geek Pride Festival thing coming up. And it's a lot of fun because they set cheese on fire. Flaming cheese. Got it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Jay, you're going to give us a quick update 
on the fake bomb detector sellers, con artist, scumbag. Yeah, we talked about this what, about three or four episodes ago. Uh, the guy that faked these bomb detectors that ended up being fancy-looking divining rods, James McCormick, uh, we finally found out that he's going to jail for 10 years. You know, I, I don't think 10 years is, is even close to long enough for what this guy actually did. So let me give you, you know, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about real quick, James McCormick decided that he was going to take a, um, like a novelty golf ball, uh, like finder. It's like a joke gift that you would give someone. He actually like found some place to buy these in bulk and he modified them, put some stickers on them and then ended up selling them to governments as bomb detectors. And then what he did once he started making some money is he, he made his own and it looked a lot a lot more robust and a lot cooler, but you know the bottom line is that it didn't really do any. This new one didn't do anything either. And, and what his whole premise was: if you take a piece of the substance, a bomb, whatever it is, money that you're looking for, whatever you're trying to find with the t- detector, and you put it in a jar along with one of these uh, stickers that supposedly absorbs the essence of the, whatever the substance is, then you take that that piece of paper or the sticker and you put it inside the detector, the detector would then be able to detect that substance. Now, when you go to the airport and they do this to you, they rub you down with that little swab and they put it in a machine. That machine is actually smelling the swab and seeing if there's any molecules of bomb residue or whatever they're looking for on it. And they can look for a lot of different things with that. This machine isn't doing that. See, this machine doesn't have any electronic devices in it. This machine is not doing anything. It's a divining rod. And he was selling these to governments under the idea that they could detect anything, virtually anything at huge distances, you know, miles underground and whatever it is that you wanted. It's an amazingly versatile machine that could do all these different things. Well, turns out that it, people actually died because of this guy. These were being used at checkpoints that indeed had bombs exploded and people were injured or died because of this. Um, so some of the quotes that came from it were, uh, Judge Richard Hone said, you are the driving force and sole director behind this fraud. The device was useless, the profit out- outrageous, and your culpability as a fraudster has to be considered to be of the highest order. So they weren't kidding when they when they passed sentence on this guy. A lot of uh, a lot of people uh, were blogging about this and chiming in. There was a lot of people upset about it. And I actually, like I said earlier, I don't think ten years is even close enough it's great and they did seize his money and you know people are getting compensated that were injured and governments that spent a lot of money on this are being compensated but 10 years and jay that's the maximum sentence that surprised me that that i mean you could make an argument that he was directly related to the you know injuring and killing hundreds if not thousands of people and that's the maximum he clearly wasn't convicted for that he you know he was only convicted i guess for the fraud not for the death of people or death or injury of people who suffered because uh, those detectors were in use. They should have charged him with more then. Well, in his uh, sentencing, the judge did note that this is the maximum sentence he can give, and he justified that. He also noted that while it can't be proven that his actions led directly led to any death or injury, it is probable that it did. So perhaps that was the reason that they, that they weren't able to legally prove that he directly caused any deaths. And also it should be noted that he's only going to spend five of those 10 years in custody and then five on parole, unless, of course, he violates his parole. Jay, one of the things I find most interesting about this sort of story is because this is something I've been studying for many years, ever since I've been, been into skepticism, is the water divining uh, action or what we call the idiomotor action is where why the water divining rods move and twitch and swing and all the rest of it. 
And what is fascinating to me is that there would have been soldiers trained, if you could use that term, into using these devices, who would have been also convinced that the things work because they'd walk along and the rods would be moving back and forth. It's a, it's a really interesting area of uh, psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought about that, Richard. You know, when you have these people that are actually using the device, walking up and down lanes of cars, and they're, they're saying that they're getting an effect. But after yeah. a certain amount of time of false positives, you'd figure that they would even come to the conclusion that it's BS. But Jay, the device always works, except when it doesn't. And then there's no <laughs> That's ironclad in a court. It's superstitious thinking. I mean, you know, it's or confirmation bias. You, you can convince yourself that it works even when there's absolutely no effect whatsoever. There are many arguments along that line. You, the peop, I've heard people say, well, if it only works 10% of the time, then it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and arguments like this. Below chance. One more quick quote that I think paints a really clear picture here of what's going on. Detective Superintendent Nigel Rock was talking about what the judge was saying inside the courtroom, and he said, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, he has shown no shame, he has shown no remorse, and he carried on with complete cavalier disregard for the consequences of his contract. Yeah. He, in other words, he's a psychopath. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, at least, you know, at least he got 10 years. It's better than nothing. I wonder if he's a naturopath too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Bob, you're going to tell us about an asteroid smacking into the moon. We actually saw it. Yeah. Some people, I'm sure, did. Guys, did you see? find that this news item was everywhere the past week? Everywhere I looked, yeah. it's like this thing was yes. just in my face. But last it March... Was. Last March, a meteoroid struck the moon that was visible to the naked eye if you happen to be looking uh, at the right place in the right, in the right time. Now, I keep, I, when things like this happen, I just keep thinking how awesome it would be if, if you could actually, if you just happened to be looking up and saw that. And, uh, and of course, I was thinking today as I was putting, pulling together my notes that no psychics predicted this. Uh, no, obviously, right? And, I mean, all it would take, and- if one psychic predicted something like this just once or like twice, if you did this twice, that would be very compelling, and and it, I don't know. I, I always think about that when things like this happen. Yeah. Um, Do you guys catch yourself when you're looking at the moon that you're, you know, in the back of your mind, like, what if there's an impact while while I'm looking at the moon? I think about that often. Oh yeah. That's all. It, it has crossed my mind once or twice, especially when I'm in uh, your part of the world and the moon's upside down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are the stats? What were the stats of this bad boy? This is a meteoroid. Sure, you guys know the difference between between that. A meteoroid is uh, is in space. A meteor is within an atmosphere. And a meteorite is on the ground. So this meteoroid was reportedly the size of a small boulder, about a foot or a third of a meter across, and I think it weighed about 88 pounds. I'd call that a big rock, wouldn't you? I would call that a small boulder. I'm a foot. What's the cutoff? What's the official definition? It's it's, yeah. it's subjective, but a, a a foot a foot across that's a big that's a big rock. It's not a small boulder. But um, it hit the Mare Imbrium, which I love I love that name, and it was going about. Ooh, I hope they're okay. Fifty six thousand miles <laughs> an hour, or ninety thousand. Not okay. Ninety thousand kilometers an hour. So this thing was really booking. And as I often say, that's a hell of a lot of kinetic energy. NASA thinks it was the equivalent of about five tons of TNT. So it was yeah. pretty pretty big. Um, they've got a video. They actually have a video of it online. So go so check that out. And as I said, it was visible to the naked eye. In fact, uh, they estimate that it was as bright. I guess it's not an estimation if they've got it on tape. They know it was as bright as a fourth magnitude star. And now this, I'll, I'm going to just briefly go into this classification. It's interesting. Uh, the Greeks first classified stars by their brightness in this way. It was all naked eye. The brightest is was a one, and the dimmest thing that they could see in the sky was a six. And we've kind of uh, adapted that system and extended it a bit. So uh, Hubble can see, as you could, what do you think, what do you guys think Hubble could see? If the human eye can just barely make out a magnitude six star, 
What do you think the Hubble can see? 25. 362. No, no it's a good guess, Steve. It's 30. 30. Magnitude, magnitude 30, oh. so incredibly, incredibly dim. And uh, it's important to know that each that each subsequent number is 2.5 times dimmer or brighter, yeah. depending on which action, which direction you're going in. Uh, just for a, example, Sirius, the brightest star, is a negative 1.4. Uh, the full moon is a negative 12.6, and the sun is a negative 26.8, so very, very bright. Now, the explosion itself was interesting. It's, it's different on the moon than it would have been on the Earth, right? Because there's no atmospheric gases uh, to ignite on the moon, obviously. So the photons that we, were, that we saw came from superheated vapors and molten rock, so there was no ignited uh, atmosphere. So, and this was also- why it was so disappointing. It was yeah. really disappointing. It was like, yeah. all, it's all these headlines, like, explosion on the moon. Yeah. And then I watched it, and I was like, oh. Yeah, one pixel. It, looked, it could have been like a, compu- a computer mosaic error. No, it was, I mean, this actually um, oversaturated some of the recording devices. I mean, th- this type of event was just is unprecedented. It, it was, un, you know, in terms of the monitoring that they've been doing. And this was newsworthy, not only because anyone could have seen it, but also because it was the biggest impact ever observed by an order of magnitude. So this is 10 times brighter than anything that's been recorded since they began um, systematically looking uh, for these events starting in, in 2005. They, they see about 300 of these a year. So I guess that would mean that there's what? 600 then, if you factor in the dark side of the moon. So it's 600, 600 events like this. And this is the brightest that they've seen in 10 years. I mean, they looked not only because it's, it's, it's interesting to do that, but they also did it for the safety of future moon inhabitants. And I hadn't considered that, but yeah, if you're going to be living on the moon, and I hope someday soon uh, people will be, you're going to need to know what you're dealing with in terms of impacts. And ironically, big impacts like this, I mean, they aren't even the main concern for these future inhabitants of, uh, of moon base, moon base alpha, right? I mean, it's the tiny millimeter sized impacts that are the, the one, the thing, the thing that's going to be really nasty. These micro meteoroids, they're much more common, as you might imagine, because they're, they're a lot tinier. They can put a hole in your spacesuit or your habitat module very easily. So, uh, those things are kind of scary. For that reason, they would probably have to, and other reasons, they'd probably have to, uh, bury these, these modules, uh, underground if they could, uh, to escape them. And I recently came across a news item. Astronauts, you guys hear this? Astronauts recently found a hole in one of the solar panels of the, uh, space station caused by one of these micrometeoroids. So these things are, are nasty. They could really, really do you in. And, uh, one last thing that was interesting. It turns, it turns out that this entire event was part of a shower of, uh, of meteoroids that hit the moon and earth all around the same time. And they calculated their orbits and they were, uh, they had almost identical orbits between the Earth and the asteroid belt. So this is, so this is, could be a swarm of meteoroids that, uh, that could happen annually. So next year, you know that they're going to be looking, uh, for this kind of thing, um, and see if they can discern a pattern so they could help out, so that they would know and potentially help out any, uh, any moon denizens in the future. So cool stuff. Bob, I believe. That the meteoroid was in fact a boulder. Do you know what the official cutoff is? No, I don't. Obviously, two hundred and fifty-six millimeters in diameter. What? A little uh, bit less than a foot. What? Less than a foot in diameter. I disagree with that entirely. Why? That is Wait, the, who who <laughs> determines that? I'm shocked. That's below the, the boulder lobby out of Washington. Come on. Yeah. Then what's a rock? The Geological Society or something. And <laughs> what do you call a rock that is sixty between sixty four and two hundred and fifty six millimeters? Wait, I've heard this one. What? A rock, I stone, a nano boulder, nano boulder, semi boulder, it's called <laughs> a a cobblestone. 
Oh my god. Really? Is it? Oh. Yeah. oh, I like that. Yeah. Is that where cobblestones come from? Like, <laughs> <laughs> cobblestones come from cobblestones. It all that? makes sense. Oh god. So I don't know why sixty four and two fifty six. I mean they're um well, it's 256. Yeah, multiples of two. You know, how you go two. Just like, two, just like four, yeah. kilobytes 16, or megabytes 32. or whatever. Yes, yes. Uh, whatever. 64 to 256 is a cobblestone greater than 256 is a boulder. That's crazy talk. Well, let's move on. The, you guys familiar with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual? Yes, I Indeed. am. My doctor says I am. Oh, I have one right here. Yeah, after reading your blog. <laughs> it's, it is very fine, very entertaining read. So the DSM has been in the news recently because version 5 was just released by the American Psychological Association. And uh, the DSM has been shrouded in controversy for decades. Uh, basically, this is the official list of mental illnesses and disorders, of diagnoses. Essentially, there are clinical diagnoses determined by a list of symptoms, signs and symptoms, and this became the standard that insurance companies use for reimbursement, FDA uses for indications of medications, and has also um, become uh, important in defining uh, research as well. If you're doing research into mental illness, um, traditionally studies w- would follow DSM diagnoses. So like, for example, schizophrenia, you would research into something associated with the official DSM diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder or major depression or whatever. Each time a revision comes along, there's always a lot of discussion about which diseases were created, which ones were eliminated, which ones were combined or separated out. For example, this time around, Hoarding is now its own disorder. It's no longer oh, considered wow. to be part of obsessive compulsive disorder. Is that, do you think, is that an effect of reality TV, seriously? I was wondering about that because it has its own TV show. It's got to have yeah, its own TV because, show. Yeah, because I mean, it's hard. Very popular. Yeah. And I don't very know popular. what's happening really in the psychiatric industry at the moment, but yeah, it's like a popular TV show all of a sudden and then bam. That's, yeah, I mean, no, by weird coincidence, they made, uh, drinking wine, scantily dressed, sitting around with a bunch of other women with big boobs. Like, that's its own mental disorder. Real housewives syndrome? Yes, thank you. Real housewives syndrome. Guys, I tell you the hoarding, just a quick little tangent on hoarding. I, I helped, oh I helped clean up an apartment of somebody who had died and was a hoarder. OMFG. It was a sight to behold. You, you know, seeing it on TV is one thing, but when you're walking through it, it, it's incredible. It's just amazing. Well, give us some, tell us some details. Well, basically you would walk in and there was a pathway into the kitchen and there was a pathway to the couch and the TV. And that was pretty much it. You really weren't going to do too much more in that place. In the, what else in, do you need? In, well, the bedroom. The, how about the, how about the <laughs> Man, bedroom? I sleep on the couch. Well, exactly. The, couch. the bedroom was covered like four or five feet high on the bed everywhere. It took us days and days to, to clean all that stuff out. It's, it's amazing what people can get used to and what they put themselves through. So this time around, more than any other release, there is another layer to the controversy surrounding the DSM, and that is the entire theoretical basis for the DSM itself, not the implementation or the execution of the DSM in terms of which diagnoses to, to have, but just the entire idea of of basing a mental illness diagnoses on a list of clinical signs and symptoms that are determined by consensus of expert opinion. In fact, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, and this is really, I think, what spawned the controversy this time around, 
Thomas Insull put out a statement saying that the, the NIMH is no longer going to use the DSM when determining research protocols for, for mental illness. What are they going to use? They're going to use something else. So this is, here's the kind, it's really interesting, you know, because there's multiple layers here. I don't know, you know, how much I'm really going to have time to dissect. We could spend a lot of time talking about this. One issue is how evidence-based versus opinion-based are the specific diagnoses. Um, critics argue that it's largely opinion-based and not terribly evidence-based. However, what, what practitioners say is that, and the people who actually are doing it, is that it's deliberately pragmatic. You know, it's, it's, this is a clinical book. It's not really meant to guide research. It is, a, it is a, pr- a pragmatic guideline for clinicians to help patients. And is actually more true than you might imagine across the board in medicine. One thing that's been interesting is the psychiatry critics, psychiatry deniers have been using this whole episode to, you know, to launch another sort of spin campaign against mental illness and against psychiatry. My criticism of their rhetoric, well, I have lots of criticisms, but, but what they do is they, they list criticisms of psychiatry as if, and they specifically claim that they're unique to psychiatry, which is just incredibly disingenuous and or naive because there's none of the criticisms are unique to psychiatry. They all exist to some degree in the rest of medicine. And, and this uh, conflict between, you know, like real disease entities and pragmatic disease categories exists in the rest of medicine as well. In fact, we often don't really care as much about giving a patient a specific diagnosis, a specific pathophysiological diagnosis, if that diagnosis does not specifically lead to a treatment. What we're interested in is how is the patient presenting and what's the probability of risk versus benefit for an intervention. And and an intervention includes a diagnostic test, not just a treatment. So we end up treating based upon risk versus benefit of how patients present not on a, you know, here's a very specific disease that has a very specific treatment. Obviously, that also occurs in medicine, but that's probably more of an exception than a rule. And so psychiatry is no different, really, than the rest of medicine in this regard. And the, the DSM may be an extreme manifestation of this, where it's all sign and symptom-based clinical categories based, you know, pragmatically designed for treatment rather than trying to identify specific biological entities. But that's not necessarily a bad thing depending on its purpose. Now we flip it to the NIMH. This is a research organization. They want to do research into mental illness. And and uh, the director, Thomas Intel, is basically saying that this doesn't work for research, that these entities are not necessarily even valid biologically. And therefore, when we try to do gene studies or brain studies to try to figure out, for example, what OCD is, and OCD is not a real category, a real biological category, just a pragmatic clinical category, then that dooms our research to failure because we are studying something that doesn't really exist. So what he's recommending is essentially stepping back from the DSM, from these pragmatic clinical diagnoses, and trying to deconstruct how patients with mental illness 
what their signs and symptoms are to try to relate them to a more fundamental neurological function and then try to really like you know it, nothing short of completely recategorizing all of mental illness along biological lines and then using that as a guide towards genetic and neuroscientific studies functional mri studies which is fine i think as a research approach that's all fine if you remember we recently interviewed heather berlin who does ocd research as a neuroscientist and that's essentially what she said is that we're trying to get really reductionist to try to figure out what fundamental unit of neurological function or behavior is really going on here and what's the neurological correlate the neuroanatomical correlate of that and let's try to study that rather than studying entire clinical syndromes, which are a mishmash of probably many different things. So that's, I, I find that, that whole discussion very interesting. I think though, what happens is, and this, I, I think Thomas Insel went too far in his criticism of the DSM, is that it misunderstands the context of the DSM. It is a clinical document, not necessarily supposed to be a guide for research. Um, so I think it's appropriate, rather than to say that DSM serves no purpose, but it's more appropriate to say that it shouldn't be used as a straitjacket for research. It probably shouldn't even be used as a straitjacket for, you know, insurance company reimbursement, maybe not even FDA drug indications. That, you know, that all does need to be rethought. I also totally agree that the DSM diagnoses may not be biologically real entities, discrete entities. And there, and, but we know that, you know, we know that clinical diagnoses are placeholders. That's what we call something until we understand the pathophysiology. And what's interesting is that if you look at past, back at the last hundred years of medical history, this happens over and over again. We start out with a clinical scheme of diagnosis, just describing what we see. Um, and I give tons of examples in the two blog posts I wrote about this during the week. One, for example, is muscular dystrophies. You have entities like fascio-scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy or limb-girdle muscular dystrophy. It's just describing where people are weak. Um, it's, just, it's completely defined clinically. It's inherited, age of onset, in, in, pattern of inheritance and pattern of weakness and other you know, clinical signs that occur. And now, fast forward 50, 60, 70 years where we start to actually understand the genetic mutations and how those genetic mutations translate into specific muscular dystrophies, a lot of those muscular dystrophies got recategorized along genetic lines. Now we, now we have, we, we categorize them based upon their genetic mutation, not their clinical presentation. So the same thing will probably eventually happen uh, more and more to psychiatry. It just hasn't happened yet. Again, like Insul made the point that, you know, we're, we've been promising for years or decades biological markers, you know, blood tests that you could do to say, yeah, this person actually has autism or schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder, but they're just not coming. You know, he's blaming that on the DSM. I think it's more that it's because mental illness is horrifically complicated. I think these are there we're not going to have clean categories because there are no clean categories. They don't exist. The, these entities are inherently fuzzy at the edges. Think about the controversy that we had over the categorization of Pluto as a planet versus a dwarf planet and trying to decide what the yeah. dividing line is between a planet and a, and a dwarf planet, right? Yeah. Multiply that by a thousand, yeah. and that's what you're talking about with mental disorders. 
Uh, oh it's not only are there hundreds of disorders, you know, it's not just one thing, planet or dwarf planet, but there's multiple variables by which you can, you know, think about and define them, and they don't all break out in any kind of clean way. So you have all this overlap and all this fuzziness, and there's just no, there's never going to be a clean system. I think if Insul thinks, so he's at the extreme biological end of the spectrum where, you know, in 50 years, we're going to have a completely revamped biological scheme of defining mental illness. I think that's delusional. I think that rather, we're going, we're always, there's always going to be clinical criteria mixed in there because the, the, while we may find genetic predispositions, I don't think we're going to find genetic one gene or you know one mutation, one disease kind of genetic diseases. I think we've already found most of those. While there may be biological markers, there may be fMRI markers that tell you what who's likely to have a disease or the probability of having a diagnosis. The clinical ma- manifestations are going to be so variable that it's still going to defy any easy categorization system. And while I don't think, I, I, I don't think the DSM is going to survive without massive changes over the next 50 years. I mean, it's been significant. It's, it's a, a very much a dynamic document that's changing all the time. I think that, and I think we will, it will include more and more uh, biological and neuroscientific markers. We're never going to completely get away from the clinical diagnosis. So, it's, you know, it's a very interesting, a lot of angles to this that's interesting just in science in general. How do we define things? How do we categorize things? And in medicine, you know, what is the, the approach that we take? The, the so-called doctor house approach is very far from what actually happens in medicine most of the time. It's not like we don't just hunt for that one magical, very specific diagnosis and then once we find it, we can cure it. You know, that, that happens, but it's much more the exception than the rule. It's more that we just take this is what may be going on, and then everything else is probability, risk versus benefit from there. Steve, I find it fascinating you're using terms like entities, and I know why you're using them, and I know the, the meaning in, in your context. But this whole discussion, I can't help thinking in the back of my mind the arguments from the Scientologists, the, who's, who of course are the enemies of psychi- um, psychiatry, uh, and their entities are, of course, the the thetans, which are the root co- cause of uh, mental illness and things like this. And this ongoing discussion in in medicine, uh, generally speaking, and and other areas of science too, is a wonderful opening mm-hmm. for the enemies of reason to say, "Ah, you see, they can't even get it right, or they've changed their mind, or they don't know what they're talking about." Yeah, exactly. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, "Oh, look, they're you know the DSM changes every edition. That what that, that shows they don't know what they're talking about." If you look at the broader context here and put it in the context of all of medicine, what it seems like is that, if you're being optimistic anyway, is that perhaps we're on the cusp of psychiatry transitioning from the descriptive phase, which all medical diagnoses pass through, the descriptive phase to the sort of quasi-biological phase. And then and how far we can take that remains to be seen. You know, where we, where we understand something about cause and effect and pathophysiology, but, um, it's always going to be really complicated with mental illnesses. And, you know, good for Insul for saying, all right, we have to rethink our strategy and because we're not really, we're just not making the progress that we would like to be making. That's fine. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the descriptive phase was wrong. You know, it was what it was. It, it was a placeholder describing what we can know until we, and as a, as a way of, of sort of guiding our ability to do, because how can you do research on something that you don't even have a label for? You know what I mean? How can you talk about it in the literature? You need placeholder labels 
as a way to guide further research, as long as that that guiding is not a straitjacket. So that, I think that's a legitimate criticism. Well, this this complexity you talk about, which again is the normal, natural part of scientific investigation and endeavor, is also a, a, a good opening for the enemies of reason to come in, chime in with a far simpler explanation. Right. Oh, it's it's aliens. It's aliens. Right. And sometimes they don't even have the, you know, they're just deniers. They don't really have an alternate explanation. They're just mental illness doesn't exist. Just, just as flat yeah. out doesn't exist. It's, a, it's, a, it's all politics. It's political. And that they say that, so they, they interpret the consensus of expert opinion as political opinion. Well, you know, I, of course culture and politics intrude on anything like this, but that, that's not, just not a fair characterization. You know, you actually have clinicians trying to help patients. It's not just, oh, this is what the, f- the fad of the day is, so let's, in- let's enshrine it in the DSM as a diagnosis. Uh, and again, they don't offer the psychiatry deniers. I mean, the, the real hardcore, like, the ones who say that mental illness doesn't exist, uh, they don't really have anything reasonable to put up in its place. It's just, it's all good. There is no illness. It's all just psychiatrists abusing patients, you know, for political ideological reasons. It's just, it, it really is almost bizarre, you know, when you get to the extreme end. Well, you get the arguments like that from the anti-vaccination yeah. crowd. Yeah, too. absolutely. Creationists too. All right. Well, Rebecca, you're going to finish off the news, the news section for us with a story about placenta. Yeah. Normally when we, uh, when you hear skeptics talking about placenta, uh, it's usually eating it, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the big sort of pseudoscientific thing about placentas yeah. is that, um, mothers should keep the placenta and then eat it and they will gain superpowers, baby related superpowers, <laughs> I assume. Uh, but this is a different trend related to, uh, that, but yet somehow more disgusting. In my opinion. Um, oh, great. <laughs> oh. So, what could be more disgusting than eating a placenta uh, that came Whoa. out of your body? How about uh, leaving the placenta attached to your baby as it rots away? Until what the, the baby percent. rots away? <laughs> the until, the, until the baby rots <laughs> into rots nothing. Uh, no, until um, until the umbilical cord detaches naturally. Uh, that's that's the trend. It's it could be called a, a new trend. It was in the New York Post, but apparently it goes back to the seventies, uh, the late seventies. So I guess people have been doing this for quite some time. Surely there's science to back up this uh, claim of benefit. No, there is not. And don't call me Shirley. Uh, (laughs) I, okay. So I haven't been able to find any science to back up these claims that if you leave the baby attached to the placenta, uh, the baby will be healthier, like in, in terms of including like long-term health, uh, you know, the baby will, be a healthier person growing up. Uh, that, that those are the sort of claims they make, and there's really I couldn't find anything to back it up except for there are a number of studies that suggest babies can benefit by not clamping and cutting the umbilical cord immediately after birth. Like right now, a common thing to do is within I'm talking like really quickly within Moments, a minute. Really. Yeah, yeah, within a minute. You you, you cut the, the umbilical cord. There are a number of studies to suggest that the baby could benefit 
if you just let it go a little bit, like, like 90 seconds longer, uh, long enough for the placenta to give like one last push of blood and antibodies and stem cells into the baby, uh, and then cut it off. There's really like nothing to suggest. There's, there's no, there's no back and forth. It's like topping off your, topping off your gas tank when you're at the pump. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Why not? And Rebecca, that's, that, the evidence really is only compelling for preemies. Mm. Um, even for full term infants, it's actually still a raging controversy whether three minutes is better than 30 seconds. So that's delayed cord clamping. We're talking 90 seconds to 180 seconds, you know, a few minutes, not, 10 days or well you know if you leave it if you just leave it go by itself it takes an hour or so for to clot off by itself so well that's for it to clot but not necessarily to like fall off and and that is what you say can take last up up to to 10 10 days yeah but once it clots there's no more transfusion from the placenta yeah so that would be the equivalent of clamping yeah like so after after an hour yeah there's really nothing to benefit so now Basically, you've just got your baby attached to this rotting organ that is just flopping around. Um, the good news is that you can purchase little uh, bags to put them in, <laughs> like little cheesecloth bags um, to make the... the <laughs> no, 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 no. Ziploc is bad because... <laughs> natural? Smell. Well, no, because the smell... <laughs> because... Oh, okay, boy. so oh. if you leave the placenta just out in the air, then... If you have a bit of luck, the placenta will dry out. But if you, if it's very humid mm-hmm. or if you pack it into some Tupperware or a Ziploc, then you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna trap that moisture in and, and the placenta is going to start to rot and it is, it is not gonna smell good. Yeah, but at that um, point, what are the, could you imagine that Tupperware party? It, <laughs> <laughs> what, what do they think is be being fun. passed to the baby after? You know, Jay, hours. Jay, or... it's all natural, man. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the main defensive, this is just a completely evidence-free fad. Somebody completely <laughs> made this up and pulled it out of their posterior and they're saying, oh, the, the placenta is made of the same cells as the baby. Yeah. So what? <laughs> the, therefore, it's not waste material. Wrong. That once the baby breathes, there is absolutely no function to the placenta whatsoever. It is literally waste. But the argument is completely irrational. It makes absolutely no sense. It's just naturalistic granola nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of it is, is metaphorical. Like, yeah. oh, you're cutting the cord. You're cutting the bond between mother and child. <laughs> and I don't know if you know those people God. who like metaphorically There's... still haven't cut the cord today yeah. as adults, but those yeah, are right, the no sort kidding. of people that I'm believing these children will grow up into unless something is done. Yeah, Jay, um, Jay, uh, uh, I got one quote from, what's her name? Mary? How do you pronounce her last name? Sella? Oh. She, she's a big. Sella. Yeah, I don't know. Sella. I would say, I would say Soleil. Okay. Mary, yeah. Sure. Mary Soleil. One quote from her about this. She said that, um, invading the natural process, uh, she described it as invading the natural process when there's a healthy mother and baby is likely to cause harm in some way seen or unseen. So, I mean, she thinks it's a, this is a natural process. I don't think there's been a human in the history of humanity that, that kept that thing attached for 10 days or, or even three <laughs> days. I mean, even, you know, even our ancestors, uh, you know, in caves, I'm sure they just kind of took a sharp rock and cut it off. As well, you know what could. animals do? They eat it. They eat it. They, they, they chew they it, it off. Yeah. They, yeah and so and why don't they chew it off? That's what's natural. Chew that's it off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Hi, I hi, did want to, dig in. You know, on that note, I did want to mention if anyone in our audience is still considering this, you probably shouldn't if you have pets. Like, yeah, it's right. not, you don't drag that thing around. Don't carry oh. a rotting organ <laughs> attached to your baby yeah. around if you have a dog or a cat in the house. I could just um, see my dog like tr- you know trotting in from the other room with half a placenta hanging out of his mouth. Oh. Right. All right, so so oh. coming from someone, oh. Steve oh. probably has a lot more experience because Steve's delivered babies. But I was you know at first base oh, yeah. watching my wife deliver my son, and I got I actually had like a ten minute conversation with the doctor about the placenta and watched the whole process of it coming out and took a good look at it. And the doctor actually showed me like what it is hands on, like this holding it right in front of me. This is what this does. This is the sack, Mm. everything, right? That is the most Mm -hmm. disgusting proposition I could uh, imagine. The thing Fresh, brand new placenta sitting there. Brand right after, new. You know what I mean, though. Like, it, still, it had get, the, still has the tags on it. It doesn't get any fresher than like you know five minutes after the baby's born, and it's phenomenally disgusting. It's disgusting. Like you want, it's so weird looking. You just want to throw it out the window. Like get rid of the freaking thing. They want to carry yeah, it with them. I'm all for you know. I I often get get on a soapbox on like trying to make people accept the fact that our bodies are our bodies and they're nothing to be scared of and there's certainly nothing to be disgusted by but throw the placenta away just throw it away like it does not it doesn't its purpose is over i the other thing is i ran this news story past my fellow skeptics a number of whom are mothers and elise anders had a very good point uh, she said, I'm not sure I can even be convinced that having a rotting organ attached to a newborn baby is a good idea, especially when it doubles as a strangulation hazard and the kid's only hope is some sleep-deprived people who have no idea what the hell they're even doing in the first place. Oh, yeah, right. uh, so I thought that was a good point. It hadn't <laughs> occurred to me before that, yeah, the, having a cord attached to your baby is a, a strangulation hazard. So... Yeah, it's it serves no purpose. Cut it off, throw it away, get on with your life. Yeah. And you know, and, and actually, one other thing while we're on the topic. <laughs> and one other thing. One other and thing. One more thing. Uh, in addition to it having no purpose, this is yet another thing that now, uh, luckily, hopefully, a minority of people, a small group of people, will be throwing in the face of new mothers to tell them that they're not good enough. Like, mm-hmm. you know, along with whether or not they're breastfeeding, whether or not they're having a glass of wine, you know, this is one Listening more standard, yeah. one more ridiculous standard for new mothers to live up to. Oh, you didn't leave your placenta attached to the baby for a week and carried around with you to the park oh. and like on your errands oh. into the bathroom? Oh. No, yeah. like. Let's stop putting like this being crap. Jewish at a country club. Oh, <laughs> it's already stop, so stop difficult. Like that, that first week or two weeks after you bring a baby home, it's really hard. I couldn't wait for the little nub of the umbilical cord to fall off. That's what one yeah, of the other yeah, mothers exactly. said. Yeah, stuff. yeah. One of the other mothers said she felt it was really weird and she couldn't stop like poking it until it fell off. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like we have a natural tendency to pick at weird things hanging off our body. Like imagine you have like this dried up placenta. Yeah. Like I would be scratching at that thing oh. all day. Yeah. Well, we got a, a couple of questions to cover this week. Uh, the first one actually is a, a follow up to. A follow-up that I did last week. If you recall, last week I, I discussed the fact that um, water heater temperature. Uh, the fourth novella brother is an en- home energy expert, and he pointed out that you should have your home water heater set to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 49 degrees Celsius 
or lower in order to save energy and to prevent scalding risk, especially if you have children or older people in the home. A number of listeners wrote in to bring up the, the counterpoint that a lowered water temperature in the, in water heaters is a risk for Legionnaire's disease that it allows Legionella to breed. So. Hello. I, I had to do a deep dive into this issue. Of course, it's always more complicated than you think, right? Um, mm. can never, can never touch on, just touch on a subject. There's always so much complexity there. So here's the, here's the bottom line. It's that, that is true that you, that we are absolutely at cross purposes with this. The temperature that is recommended in order to minimize burn risk is 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degree, 49 degrees Celsius. The temperature that is recommended in order to minimize the risk of Legionella growing and surviving in the water tank is 140 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 60 degrees Celsius. Oh. 140 degrees is, is a scalding temperature. It would take only about six seconds of exposure to water at 140 degrees Fahrenheit to cause a very bad burn to a child. So there, there absolutely is that risk. So which, what's the greater risk? Legionnaire's disease or, or getting burned from uh, hot water? With millions of bathtubs around the world. Getting burned is probably more common. It depends. So <laughs> there's question. also a difference. Are you a legionnaire, number it, it, one? There's a difference between electric water <laughs> heaters and fossil fuel-based water heaters. Fossil fuel ones are better. Why? Uh, because uh, just be, because of design, because the, the water is more uh, is, a, is a more uniform temperature. Uh, some electric water heaters have uh, cold water at the bottom, cool, colder or cooler water at the bottom, and that's where you know in the cooler water the legionnaire, the legionella can proliferate. In fact, in one review that I found, they found quite a, they found forty percent of electric water heaters were were contaminated with legionella, oh. but, wow. but none but none of the fossil fuel based ones were. Wow. Um, so you could make an argument that if you have a fossil fuel-based water heater, you can go down to the 120 Fahrenheit, 49 Celsius temperature. Mm -hmm. If you have an electric water heater, then you should consider going up to the 140 or 140 Fahrenheit, 60 Celsius temperature. However, there's one other wrinkle to this, and that is there are water heaters that have an anti-scalding feature. What that means is you can set it to 140 degrees, and it, it, so that was high enough to prevent Legionnaires. But the, that water will get mixed with some colder water before it comes out of the faucet. So the the hottest the water will come out of the faucet is 120, even though the water's sitting in the water heaters at 140. Well, the colder water have already gone through the process of being heated and then cooled well like really cold water is too cold for legionella so it's really oh, it's, it's oh, that oh. warm water that's the risk mm. will, will the hot water kill the legionella yes if it's if, coming if, through if, that if, system you're talking about yeah so if, if the water gets to 140 degrees at least once a day that's enough uh to prevent legionella from proliferating 160 degrees is what you really need to just kill it all you know that that's bactericidal. You know, that so killer. what does that do to you, Steve? It's a, it's a respiratory infection and it's like 12% fatality. It's serious. The other, the article I found also said that for every 10 degrees you raise or lower the temperature, that it results in a difference of 3% efficiency. So the difference, that's Fahrenheit. So the difference between 150 degrees 
Fahrenheit, and 120 degrees is about 12% on your heating bill, you know, for, for the water heater. Uh, so not insignificant, but not huge, but probably better than either being scalded or getting Legionnaire's disease. Can anybody get Legionnaire's, or I thought it attacked mostly uh, older people? Well, it's anybody can get it, but the elderly, the young, and the immunocompromised are at most at risk, which is like right. most infections. Yep. Yeah. Elderly, young, immunocompromised. Right. That, that's a pattern in nature. Yep. The World Health Organization errs on the side of the hotter water, 60 degrees Celsius, 140 Fahrenheit. Um, that, because that, you know, that's, it's a health organization. They're more concerned about, you know, the spread of Legionnaire's disease. You know, if you really want to be obsessive, get the anti-scalding tank and keep it hot. Yeah, their motto is don't get into hot water, get into hot water. <laughs> 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 oh my God. All right. All right. One more email. This one comes from Frank Denisi from Boston. Frank! Uh, Denisi! From Boston. From Boston. Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Frank writes. No script necessary. Hi, my name is Frank. I have been listening to the podcast for the past year and love the show and would like to thank you for making my 4.30 a.m. gym visits fun and interesting. Wow, 4.30 a.m. I am a mechanical engineer and work for the and work for a MEP consulting firm and specialize in healthcare, laboratory, and high-rise and skyscraper design. At full disclosure, I am also a Christian. I just listened to podcast 408, the Don McLeroy interview. I very much enjoyed it, but it was painful to listen to. Don presented no hard facts or studies and kept presenting his interpretation of popular books. When I design a building, I start with the prevailing laws, building codes, and standards and base all my design and calculations on a foundation of fluid dynamics, heat transfer, and strength of materials. At the end of the day, I have to be able to defend my design. I could never simply depend on a popular engineering rule of thumb. I love the podcast, but honestly, Don may not have been a great choice. He failed to argue his case from any solid studies. Is there anyone out there who can argue the side of intelligent design by presenting potentially hard facts and studies? I believe in evolution, but would love to hear a solid discussion presenting both sides. Thank you, Frank. So, short answer? No. 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 <laughs> no. There, aren't, there aren't any. There aren't any. There aren't any hard facts or oh. published studies or anything that really defend intelligent design or creationism. Um, Don really is as good as it gets. Seriously. I mean, having read all their stuff and, you know, d had tons of debates and discussions with, you know, even the leading lights of, of intelligent design, this is as good as it gets. It is just frank denialism. Now, sure, somebody frank. like... Somebody like Michael Bayhe, like Michael Bayhe might, <laughs> you know, couch his, uh, uh, you know, irreducible complexity and, you know, put it, put it in those terms. But th his arguments have been completely destroyed by scientists. They are, they are vacuous. It, they really are no better, even though he might, you know, put them in somewhat better terms. And honestly, Don's read all the intelligent design stuff and he, he, did it? Did an honest and fair job of presenting that side. That is really just as good as it can. Unfortunately, this this reminds me of a discussion I had uh, when I was in this film festival with Rebecca in the Czech Republic. They asked me to introduce uh, the Enemies of Reason by Richard Dawkins, which I did. And afterwards, there was a, a question and answer session, 
me, I guess, speaking for on behalf of Richard Dawkins or, or the views expressed in in the in the in the film. And one of the complaints that they, I got from the audience was, "Well, th this this movie is really silly because he chose the really stupid people to argue their case." And I said, "No, he chose some of the best people on the other side, but their arguments were really stupid." Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it could seem that way. It could seem like you're you're going after the easy targets, but it's yeah. all easy. Just as a note, for those who are interested, the week after the interview with Don McElroy, I wrote a far four-part blog post on Neurologica dissecting the interview and Don's arguments, and I invited Don to reply. He actually did send me a couple of replies, which I then answered to in the later blog posts. He hasn't responded yet to my last two, and he said he would, so... Uh, I'm still waiting for, I guess he's trying to articulate a, a response to my last two uh, blog posts. So we'll see. We'll see if he comes back with anything. We'll see if maybe, uh, who knows, maybe I'll even change his mind. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Before we go on to Who's That Noisy, just a quick message. We are in the midst of pre-production for Ock the Skeptical Caveman, uh, and we are still looking for your help and support. So there is a casting call going on right now for actors, so just check the SGU Facebook page for details if you want to audition for a role in this series. Um, we're also looking for crew, so whatever skills or film experience you have, let us know, contact us, just send us an email at info at skepticsguide.org with the subject OCK and uh, let us know that you're interested and we will get back in touch with you. And of course, if you wish to lend your financial support to this series, we are always happy to accept uh, further support to increase the production value of the show. So let's go on now to Who's That Noisy? Evan. We had a puzzle last week, everyone. Do you recall? Remember mm -hmm. I asked everyone about cake? The cake, yeah. Who likes cake? cake? And who cake. wanted a piece of cake? The cake yes. is a lie. Yeah, I remember. The cake was a lie. It was a big lie. Let's say there are eight people who want to share a cake, but you, the person who is going to cut the cake, can only make three cuts. So how can you cut a cake using only three cuts and wind up with eight equal-sized pieces? Now, Evan, is this a round cake or a square cake? Good question. Or a pentagon. <laughs> The shape of the cake was not given, so it was up to you bear. to imagine your own shape of the cake. Uh, you can make so a cake shaped like a bear. So, yeah. so it, it yeah. must not matter. And of course, the point is there were lots of correct solutions to this puzzle, but one of which, the classic one, is you cut the cake the long way, horizontal way first, evenly, right? And then you can make your cut top to bottom, turn it 90 degrees, make another cut top to bottom. There you go. Eight equal pieces of cake. Pieces of eight, we like to call it. Uh -huh. Thank you, Richard. But Evan, <laughs> quite, there is quite kind of you, actually. The appropriate Evan, response. There's a flaw in this that quite a few people Tell pointed me. out that I thought mm -hmm. of. One, if there's any kind of delicious filling in the cake, that really blows. You, <laughs> Understood. Right? Number you mean because then you're cutting straight through it? Well, you know, because you know, you, these things aren't exact, and you're probably going to cut above or below, and you're not going to get in there. You know, then you don't above. get gotcha. any of the filling. The other thing is, if there's a topping on the cake... Mm -hmm. Then whoever gets the bottom half of the cake really gets the, uh, the, you know, the shitty end of the stick on that deal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, look, yes. I'm just so trying to point, is... science, Ev, you know, I'm no. trying to point the facts out here for you. I just, the flaw, and I'm concerned about this. No, no, these are great assumptions that everybody is making about the, about this cake. I mean, I did. What if it, what if it's a bunt some... cake? The bunt cake has that big <laughs> bubbles top to it, you know? And the frosting is, I, I just don't, I don't agree with this whole oh. thing. I, we're going to have to experiment more with this. See, I like the solution where you cut it into four, 
and then you stack them on top of each other and cut right down through them. There you go. Another That's solution. That's an unnecessary step. But would they oh, be gosh. Equal? Unnecessary uh, yes, steps. Yes. Read some Read some of the yeah. uh, suggestions <laughs> on the message boards and how people came up with, <laughs> with it. I it's will like not. Quantum equation calculations. <laughs> there was one winner for this week's drawing. Uh, Morius13 from the message boards. You are this week's winner. So congratulations. So what do you got for this week? All right. Another puzzle this week. A lot of people felt last week's was kind of on the easy side. I'll grant him that. How about this week? A little challenging. Uh, this one comes courtesy of uh, Martin Gardner. Uh, but you won't find it online, folks. If you have any of his old books, though, you might have an advantage. So a bank teller made a mistake today. The teller switched the dollars and cents when they cashed a check for Mrs. Jones, giving her dollars instead of cents and cents instead of dollars. After buying a newspaper for five cents... Mrs. Jones realized that she had remaining exactly twice as much as the original check. So based on that information, can you figure out how much was the amount of the original check? Sounds like math. <laughs> what, Martin Gardner? Math? Like math. <laughs> For those of you who wish to give an answer by email, please use WTN at theskepticsguide.org. That is our official email address for all who's that noisy. Uh, answers and also you can leave uh, your response on our message boards with which is sguforums.com and as I say every week good luck everyone alright thanks Evan it's time for science or fiction each week I come up with three science news items or facts two genuine and one fictitious and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? I yeah. am. Okay, we got yeah. just three news items, no theme, nothing unusual. Here we go. Item number one, new research finds that vitamin C can effectively kill even highly drug-resistant tuberculosis bacteria. Item number two, a new analysis finds that the U.S. has enough land and water resources to grow enough algae for biofuel to meet 100% of our fuel needs. And item number three, a recent study finds that bed sharing increases the risk of cot death or sudden infant death syndrome by fivefold. All right, Richard, why don't you go first for us this week? New research finds that vitamin C can effectively kill even highly drug-resistant tuberculosis bacteria. Um, haven't heard that one. I don't keep up with all the medical news from around the world, but I've uh, been under the impression for quite a long time that vitamin C, while it has its uses, is um, uh, overblown. Uh, its effectiveness can be overstated. So I'm not sure about that one. New analysis finds that in the U.S. enough land and water resources to grow enough algae. Yeah, that number two with the uh, biofuel sounds reasonable to me. And number three, I think I'm going to have to... About the five-fold increase of SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, I think we would have noticed that by now. So after looking at those, I think the one about the SIDS, I'm going to peg the one as, about the SIDS as being the fiction. Okay, Evan? Vitamin C can effectively kill even highly drug-resistant tuberculosis bacteria. The issue I'm having with this one is the highly drug-resistant tuberculosis the next one about um the u.s has enough land and water resources to grow enough algae for biofuel a hundred percent of our fuel needs well hmm i i think that's conceivable would we need to like convert a lot, you know 
how how can we get everything to? I mean, we might be able to produce enough energy, but do we have the infrastructure and stuff to deal with the energy that that would exactly produce? How do we harness it, store it, and all that? We might be able to produce it, but storing it and distributing it and everything else might be something else entirely. But I think that one's right. The last one about bed sharing increasing the risk of cot death by fivefold. I don't understand the correlation there. It's it. I'm I'm drawing a blank, an absolute blank with this one. But I think this. It's either between this one or the tuberculosis one. I will throw my dart at the board, and it hit the tuberculosis, highly re- drug resistant tuberculosis. That one's the fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Gosh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard any of these. Vitamin C killing tuberculosis. Like, how, how would that work? I don't. I, I don't see I don't understand how vitamin vitamin C could directly be responsible for killing bacteria, but I don't know much about bacteria or vitamin C, so who knows? Growing enough biofuel to meet a hundred percent of our fuel needs, that's also tricky. Biofuel I've always heard has just not been particularly efficient, but that I think is mostly about corn and other food crops being used as biofuel and not necessarily algae. So, I mean, if this is true, it's, that's very exciting. I don't know. I find that suspicious. A hundred percent of our fuel needs. That's, that's a lot of fuel. SIDS, uh, I was under the impression that bed sharing was already considered a, uh, problem for SIDS. But as far as I know, SIDS is still a rather mysterious sort of thing. So, I think I'm going to have to go with biofuel just because meeting a hundred percent of our fuel needs just seems so crazy. That's like a huge jump. So I'm going to go with that one. Okay, Bob. Yeah, the, the, uh, the cot death, it's, I don't know, it just seems odd to me. Um, sharing a bed with an infant. I mean, who really does that? A lot of people. I'd be, I, I, I'd be too afraid. I'd just roll over on the kid in the middle of the night. You know, I'm going to put it in a, you know, put the baby in the bed next to yours. Don't, I don't know. It just seems odd to me to be sleeping in bed with such a tiny little baby. Vitamin C. I'm not sure how drug resistant tuberculosis bacteria can be. For I mean, for all I know, they're not very uh, resistant, and therefore the fact that vitamin C can effectively kill it isn't saying too much. Uh, but on the other hand, it could be very resi- resistant. I'm just not sure how resist- resistant it is. Yeah, and I, I agree with Rebecca about um, 100% is whack that's just like that's just such a gargantuan amount now they are restricting the claim to just land and water um and uh it doesn't mention technology at all so given you know certain technologies i I could see how land usage would be minimized but uh i'm not sure there's much of a way to get around uh huge amounts of water i'll go with the biofuel and say that one just slightly edges out the tuberculosis one i'll say that Number two is fiction. And Jay. The second one about the uh, the biofuel things, yeah, it occurred to me what Rebecca said hit me when you first read it out, Steve, like 100% of our fuel needs. And when you say 100% of our fuel needs, like right now we need multiple forms of fuel. When you say 100%, we're talking about like all the electricity, all the all the uh, the petroleum products that we burn. Like that's a fun- – Not all of our energy needs, all of our fuel needs. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Even still, that's quite a bit, and I, I do see the logic in, in thinking that that one is the fake. Absolutely sleeping in bed with your child is a no-no. 
So yeah, that that one is uh, definitely science. So I think number two, the fuel needs, the 100% fuel needs is the fake. Okay. So I guess we can take these in order. Let's start with number one. New research finds that vitamin C can effectively kill even highly drug-resistant tuberculosis bacteria. Evan, you thought this one was the fiction, and this one is science. This is a very surprising I guess study. Be wrong. That's a good one to be mm. wrong about. Yeah. Now this was an in vitro study. This was in a petri dish, not in not in people, not even in animals. What the researchers were doing is they were trying to figure out how to enhance the effectiveness of anti-tuberculosis drugs. Uh, and Bob, the uh, drug resistance among tuberculosis is becoming a significant problem. Um, there are now multiple strains of, of TB that are multi-drug resistant and 9% are even extensively drug resistant. So it's, it's becoming an increasing problem, especially in, in lower income countries. Okay. So researchers are looking for ways to enhance the effectiveness of existing uh, antibiotics. So one thing that was that the researchers noted was that that cysteine, which can be a re, a reducing agent, when added to a typical TB drug, isoniazid, that it enhanced the killing effect of the of the antibiotic. That it killed it killed off the bacteria, and they hypothesized that the cysteine was producing free radicals, and the free radicals. We're damaging the TB bacteria DNA and, and killing them. So they said, okay, well, let's see if we can replace cysteine with another reducing agent and see if it has the same effect. So they replaced it with vitamin C, and it had the same effect. It sterilized the culture. Then, as a control, they, they did not include the antibiotic, the isoniazid. They did just straight-up vitamin C, and that sterilized the culture. That killed off all the, the TB as well. Cool. So they still need to figure out why that is happening. They think it might be because of the the it somehow triggering the production of free radicals which is killing off the bacteria. Oh, free radicals, huh? Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. It, I it thought does they just existed in like commercials for beauty creams. No, no, they they really do it's 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 part of the reason why the simplistic notion that taking antioxidants is good for your health is probably not true. Because oxygen-free radicals are actually part of our immune system. It's how our immune system kills off invading cells. It's also important for cell communication. It triggers, you know, cells to do things that are also beneficial. So just simplistically, you know, externally, you know, taking extra antioxidants to, to reduce your amount of oxygen-free radicals in your body is not necessarily a good thing. Um, and here's, this is kind of an example of it in that, you know, that's a mechanism of killing off these bacteria. So remains to be seen if this is going to translate in any way to a treatment that's useful in people, but uh, it was a surprising result. Uh, let's move on to number two. A new analysis finds that the U.S. has enough land and water resources to grow enough algae for biofuel to meet 100% of our fuel needs. Jay, Bob, and Rebecca, you think this one is the fiction, and this one is the fiction. Aha! Yay! Oh, Good job, guys. Richard. Sorry, Richard. And yeah, it 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 oh, is well. a now. They did do an analysis. They did. Uh, it was just focused on land and water, not on the technology to develop the biofuel, not energy efficient. Just if we if we were trying to make biofuel from by growing algae, where would we grow the algae? Do we have enough space and enough water to do it? 
and and the, by the these more recent calculations, they figured that we could make enough to meet one twelfth of our fuel needs. So there's still an order of magnitude away from all of our fuel needs. That's but that's a that's a greater than previous estimates were which are more like around the five percent or one twentieth. So they think it's a little bit more of an optimistic estimate, but still only one twelfth of our actual fuel needs. But this would use a ton of water. They, they estimate this would use forty percent of the amount of water that we couldn't that we currently use for agriculture, which is a lot. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think that this is going to pan out. I don't think we're ever going to get up to the twelve percent. I mean, not twelve percent to the to the one twelfth marker. I think even five percent. Is, is a lot. I think if we're like making gasoline from algae in the future, it'll be 1% or less of our, of our, you know, gasoline needs. We gotta go electric. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it, interestingly, if let's say, for example, that our entire fleet goes electric and is being fueled by clean energy or, you know, fission reactors, whatever, um, well, we still need jet fuel. You know, we still need fuel for, for certain kinds of transportation where ele- electric vehicles won't cut it. So maybe we can meet our, you know, diesel and jet fuel and those kind of uh, needs through biofuels, but, but not the current fleet that we have, uh, in terms of like most cars being just regular gasoline cars. So let's move on to number three. A recent study finds that bed sharing increases the risk of cot death or sudden infant death syndrome by five-fold. Uh, Richard, you thought this one was the fiction, but this one is science. Yes, the number, the, the five-fold, that got me. I thought that, that was, was surprising. That was, that's why I chose yeah. it, because that was, that figure was surprising, both for use, but that was about. for the researchers. I mean, it was, so we knew that this was a risk, but actually, previous studies only really documented that it was a risk for parents who smoke. Uh, it's also a risk for parents who are uh, drink alcohol or use drugs. But this is the first study that really shows that it's a risk even for parents who don't smoke, drink, or use drugs. Wow. And and the the magnitude was huge. And this is a pretty comprehensive study. Um, they looked at individual records of 1,472 caught death cases and 4,679 control cases across five major studies. They, that that was the figure they came up with. They also the researchers estimated that 81 percent of cot, cot deaths among babies under three months, without other known risk factors. So if you take just that subpopulation, that they could be prevented by just if all you know all parents stopped um, sleeping with the beds in the in the oh. with the kids in the bed with them. So 81 percent reduction, not in all cot deaths, but in cot deaths in kids less than three months old who have no other risk factors. Other estimates, you know, one estimate was that in the UK, this advice could save the lives of 40% of all cot deaths. So that's, wow. that's still a lot. Wow. That's a lot. So yeah, so Jay, you're right. I mean, SIDS is still mysterious. We don't know exactly what causes it. It's, this is not from parents rolling over on their kids. I mean, maybe that's some of them, you know, who knows, but that's not. Well, the tie in to parents using drugs and alcohol, certainly, certainly. to me, yeah. yeah says like maybe that's something to do with it something is happening there yeah it could, be, it, it could be temperature related it could be carbon dioxide yeah you although know. jay there is evidence to suggest that the baby sleeping in the room with the parents may be beneficial and that may be because co2 levels from the parents are act, act as a respiratory drive so imagine you have a young infant respiratory system it's not totally mature yet and again, respiration is driven mainly by CO2, 
much less so by oxygen, by, you know, by decreased oxygen. So a slightly higher CO2 level theoretically could provide a stronger respiratory drive for the immature, you know, brain and, and prevent just stopping breathing, you know, because the brain's not fully developed. So there's a theoretical reason and some evidence to suggest that sleeping in the room is beneficial, but in the bed, that's a no-no. All right. Well, congratulations, J. Bob and Rebecca. Good job. Thank you. Yay. Richard, thank you for playing along, being a good sport. Yay. <laughs> we had a good spread this week, so was, you know that's always a good sign. It tells me it was reasonably challenging. Uh, so, Richard, uh, tell us about uh, – you have an announcement to make about a, a, a movie coming out in Australia about the anti-vaccine movement. Wow, the anti-vaxxers have been ham- getting a hammering in Australia for quite a while now, but nothing like I've seen in the last uh, month. The uh, newspapers have been tearing into them. Speeches in our parliament here – specifically against the Australian Vaccination Network. Laws are being changed. It's quite dramatic. For more information about these very dramatic moves against the anti-vaccination crowd in Australia, uh, I can only recommend that you follow our our colleague, Dr. Rachel Dunlop, and on Twitter, she is at drrachie, Dr. Rachie, or listen to her report on a recent Skeptic Zone episode 238, and that was only a couple of weeks ago, which goes into this. Uh, but seriously, uh, for those listeners in Australia, run to your TVs on Sunday night, this Sunday coming, uh, SBS1, there's a documentary called Jabbed by Sonia Pemberton, and it's a fantastically good, well-balanced, and I know I hate to use that term, but it's true, documentary about vaccination, looking at um, all sorts of issues, including some of the adverse reactions to vaccination. It's a quite frank and honest look at the whole uh, issue. And uh, I can thoroughly recommend it. I saw the film at the Olympus Film Festival and met the director, and it was amazing. And highly recommended if you know anyone who's on the fence about vaccines. This is one of those documentaries yeah. that will push them over onto our side. And Richard, we're going to be seeing you in Vegas in about six weeks. I can't wait. Yeah, it's a, it, I, I love catching up. I'm, I'm, pl- I'm so pleased I got to see Rebecca recently, and uh, I'll see all you guys soon. And uh, yeah, it's it's one of the things I love about this whole business is catching up with. So, uh, Evan, you're doing a new workshop at TAM 2013 that you haven't done before. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be uh, hosting a uh, panel, actually. And uh, the title of the workshop is called Taking on Woo in Martial Arts. So we're going to examine the crossroads of where the martial arts industry, sport, and you know what people train for fun meet the lines of skepticism and science. And on this panel are some real, real heavy hitters uh, who are all very experienced in the martial arts, including Jennifer Wheelett, John Rennie, MMA fighter Brent Weedman, and Dave Jones from the Haya podcast will be joining me. So it's Davy Jones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Davy <laughs> Jones's locker. Um, yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to be a great, uh, panel. Um, Tam is not, uh, we've not covered this before. Yeah. Uh, in cool. TAM, so this, this will be, uh, this will be new for a lot of people. So I, I hope you can join us for that. And we'll be doing our science based medicine uh, workshop as well, as well as a science based medicine panel. And the SGU will be doing a live show. And we'll have the SGU dinner. And Jay, you're going to be doing again the uh, SGU poker tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Joshy Burgers hosting. Uh, I think we have a hundred seats this year. 
Uh, last year it was awesome. I came in third, um, but I'm just still thrilled. By that. And it sold out it. very quickly. So if you want, yeah, to I came in third. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a great time. So uh, you can sign up on the uh, TAM 2013 registration page for that. Jay, you got a quote for us this week? I have I have a quote. I have a very impressive quote. Yeah, this quote made it to the homepage of Reddit. Does anybody want to guess who the author of that quote is? Uh, Carl Sagan. Nope. I see guys in Martindale. Steve Novella. James it was, it's Steve Novella. Dr. Steven Novella. Ooh, Never heard of him. That's pretty cool, Steve. Yeah, because I, I thought that you said, so, you said something like this, but then this was, this was pulled from where then? I don't know. It's part of my science-based medicine lecture, so I probably have said it in multiple venues, but I don't, I don't remember exactly where that was pulled from. Okay, well, I, we uh, had a listener actually post a quote that Steve probably wrote down at some point up on Reddit. It got to the front page that guy's name is Andrew Kruger. So I'd like to thank you, Andrew. We made a graphic and it's a, you know, it's a good picture of Steve in front of the microphone. What do you think science is? There's nothing magical about science. It is simply a systematic way for carefully and thoroughly observing nature and using consistent logic to evaluate results. Which part of that exactly do you disagree with? Do you disagree with being thorough, using careful observation, being systematic, or using consistent logic? Dr. Steve Novella. All right. Yeah, so that, that's a response <laughs> to people who say like, oh, we don't need science to know what works or what doesn't work in medicine or, you know, science doesn't have all the answers or whatever. Basic, basic anti-science statements as if what? I mean, you know, so science is just those things. So what they're really saying is, oh, we don't need to be fair and thorough and logical. Well, yeah, you do. You actually do. Uh, when you break it down like that, it's kind of hard to disagree, you know, with the individual components. Yeah, so thanks, Andrew, for posting that up in Reddit. It was kind of fun to see that get all the way up to the front page. Yeah, and I'll be posting that on the SGU Facebook page in case you want to take a look at it. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me again this thank week. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Anytime, thanks, Steve. And Richard, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, gang. It's always a pleasure to be a guest rogue. See you thanks, soon, Richard. Richard. Bye, See Richard. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.